It is recorded in both St. Matthew and St. Mark that on one occasion, a group of men brought their paralyzed friend to the house where our Lord was preaching. But because of the crowd, they could gain no admittance. So they raised their friend to the roof, took away some of the tiles, lowered him before our Lord. And Christ, when he saw the paralyzed man, said, Your sins are forgiven. At that moment, many in the crowd said within themselves, This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Reading their thoughts, Christ rebuked them. Why do you harbor such thoughts within yourselves? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say to this paralyzed man, arise, take up your bed, and walk. But to show you that the Son of Man, while he is on earth, has the power to forgive sins, Then he said to the paralyzed man, Arise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man took up his bed and walked. By demonstrating that he had the power instantly to cure a man of paralysis, something that his audience could see, Christ proved that he had a power which they could not see, the power to forgive sins. On the night of his resurrection, St. John records, while the apostles were huddled together in the upper room, our Lord came, breathed upon them, and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Jesus Christ came into this world to redeem sinners from their sins. He instituted in his church a sacrament, the sacrament of penance, so that if after receiving baptism we commit serious sin, we can have that serious sin removed through a good sacramental confession. He empowered the apostles on the night of his resurrection with a power over his mystical body. Three days earlier, at the Last Supper, he empowered those same apostles with power over his physical body when he told them, do this in memory of me. In every sacrament, it is our Lord who is acting. 
the priest, in the sacrament of the Eucharist, and in all the other sacraments, is the instrument of Jesus Christ. It is Christ, however, who acts. In the third chapter of St. John's Gospel, we are told that the apostles baptized. The great St. Augustine, in his tract on St. John's Gospel, wrote, whether it is Peter who baptizes, or whether it is Judas who baptizes, it is Christ who baptizes. St. Augustine was pointing out that Christ is the one who acts in the sacraments, and that an unworthy minister, such as Judas, does not have the power to impede the sacraments. And so we could say the same with regard to penance. Whether it is Peter who absolves, or whether it is Judas who absolves, it is Christ who absolves. Now the apostles handed on the power they received from our Lord, so that at this time, throughout the world, Catholic priests exercise the power to forgive sins. I must point out, however, that the apostles had the fullness of the priesthood. But an ordinary priest does not. The ordinary priest needs jurisdiction in order to hear confessions. This has become a problem during our day because there are many men who are validly ordained priests but do not have faculties. They are, in their own terms, independent priests. They may be members of the Society of St. Pius X. They seek no jurisdiction or faculty from the local bishop. And this, of course, would be a problem. If we want to go to confession, we want to go to a confession to a man who can indeed forgive us from our sins. One who not only is validly ordained, but also one who enjoys jurisdiction, which was given to him by his local ordinary. There is, thanks be to God, in the church that Christ established, the sacrament of penance, which can remove mortal sin committed after baptism. The purpose of the sacrament of penance is to remove mortal sin. We can, of course, confess our venial sins, but venial sins can be removed in other ways. It is only by confessing our mortal sins to the priest that these mortal sins can be remitted. Now, a mortal sin 
is a serious offense against the law of God. To commit mortal sin, not only what you do must be something which gravely violates the command of God, but you must know it and you must give full consent to it. We can well understand that if people who do not have the use of reason commit atrocities, even though these atrocities are gravely wrong, the people who commit them are guiltless of serious sin. One has to know that what he is doing is seriously sinful and give full consent of his will to it. If the man thinks that an action he is about to commit is mortally sinful, but in reality it is not, he is, if he follows through, guilty of serious sin. Let us say he thinks that stealing a bunch of bananas is gravely offensive to Almighty God. But he doesn't. That means he is willing to commit a grave offense, even though what he did in reality was only venially offensive. He himself, because he was willing to commit a grave offense, is guilty. If he is doubtful, if he knows that what he is about to do is wrong, but he doesn't know if it is serious or if it is not, and yet he willingly commits the fault, he is willing, therefore, to commit grave offense. Now, we are obliged when we go to confession to tell the priest all of the mortal sins that we have committed. That is, those mortal sins which have not yet been confessed according to their kind and according to their number. For each time that we commit a mortal sin is in itself a mortal sin. If a man knowingly withholds a mortal sin in confession, he commits a sacrilege. In other words, he is in a worse condition having gone to confession than before he entered the confession. Let us say a man embezzled $10,000 and committed adultery. He goes to confession knowing that he has these two sins upon his soul. He confesses the adultery but says nothing about the embezzlement. When that man emerges from the confessional, he is in a worse state than before he entered. Before he entered, he had two mortal sins, the embezzling and the adultery. Now he has three. Added to those two is the grave sin of sacrilege. 
If that man goes to communion in this state, his communions are sacrilegious. He does what St. Paul commanded against. In the first letter of the Corinthians, chapter 11, St. Paul tells us that he who eats this bread or drinks this cup unworthily is guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. The Council of Trent tells us quite plainly that no one, no matter how contrite he may think himself to be, may dare approach the sacred banquet knowing that he has an unconfessed mortal sin upon his soul. Now let us say that three more months pass and the man who had made that sacrilegious confession commits a fresh act of adultery. He goes to confession, he confesses the new act of adultery, but he says nothing about the embezzling, nothing about his bad confession, nothing about the sacrilegious communions he has received. All the man has done is add to his sinful state. Let us say that three or four months go by, touched by the grace of God, he wishes to make a clean breast of everything. What must he do? He must go back to his last good confession, the one before he embezzled and before his first act of adultery. He must tell the priest all of the mortal sins that he committed from that time to the present. That means he must confess two acts of adultery, the embezzling of the $15,000, the two sacrilegious confessions, and as far as he can remember, the number of times he has received the Eucharist unworthily. He may not know the exact number, but he can approximate, and he is bound to do so. Once he does this, the absolution of the priest removes all of his mortal sins, and he is once more enjoying the state of sanctifying grace, union with Almighty God. The sacrament of penance, the Curie of ours said, is the sacrament of the infinite mercy of Almighty God. And you recall how the Curie of ours, during the summer months, spent more than 12 hours in the confession every day of the week, every week of the year. And yet, the cure would say, the sacrament of penance is the sacrament of the infinite mercy of Almighty God. Now, when we go to confession, 
We are obligated to tell the priest, as I pointed out, all of the unconfessed mortal sins we have on our souls. But we can receive the grace of the sacrament by mentioning some sin. You don't have to confess all of your venial sins. You do have to confess all of your mortal sins. If you mention one or two of your venial sins, it is sufficient to receive the grace of the sacrament. If you cannot recall committing even a venial sin since your last confession, but you still wish to receive the grace of the sacrament as you should, you can mention some sin even though it has already been forgiven, some sin that you committed since the time of your baptism. You might say, why? That sin is forgiven. Yes, it is. But I want to see, receive the grace of the sacrament of penance. I want to say to Almighty God that I am sorry. Many times... When we offend those who are near and dear to us, in particular our parents, we can say time after time, I am sorry for that time when I offended you by disobeying your rules. Yes, and so we can say the same to Almighty God. Moreover, when we accuse ourselves freshly of some sin from the past, some of the temporal punishment we deserve is removed. Now, I did mention to you yesterday that on Friday we will say the rosary here as a group, and we will also fulfill one of the conditions necessary for the gaining of a plenary indulgence. The plenary indulgence, or any kind of an indulgence, takes away temporal punishment due to forgiven sin. We do live in a Protestant country, and the Protestants had a peculiar idea. They rebelled against the Catholic Church's teaching on all matters. And when it came to the sacrament of penance, they disavowed it. They maintained that if you say to God you're sorry, that's sufficient, and that would take away everything. But the scriptures indicate that there is a difference between sin and its punishment. We know, and the church during this time of Septuagesima puts it before our mind's eye, that Adam offended against Almighty God along with Eve. And the Book of Wisdom tells us that God forgave Adam but even though he was forgiven for his sin, nonetheless, he and his wife Eve had to undergo hundreds of years of penance 
for the transgression that they had committed. There is therefore a big difference between temporal punishment due to forgiven sin and the sin itself. The church grants to us indulgences. These are called plenary as well as partial. Partial, as the name implies, takes away some of the temporal punishment that we deserve for our forgiven sins. Many, many prayers that you say have attached to them a partial indulgence have the intention of gaining as many of these indulgences as you possibly can. In addition to partial indulgences, there are plenary. Plenary indulgence comes from a Latin word, plenus, an adjective which means full. If there is a plenary session of Congress, it means everybody is present. The plenary indulgence, because it takes away all of the temporal punishment, has certain conditions. One of these conditions is that on the day that we do the indulgence work, we also receive communion. Second, that we pray for the intentions of the Holy Father, and our Father and a Hail Mary suffice. Thirdly, that we go to confession. If we've gone to confession during that past week, that is sufficient. If not, we have another week in which we can do so. Going to confession is our great way of receiving sanctifying grace and receiving sanctifying grace so that we might be able, with the help of Almighty God, to overcome our sins. I have told you it's necessary for us to confess all of our mortal sins, but we also wish to make progress in virtue. We wish to respond to Almighty God's love. And what is it that offends God most, sin. The next worst thing to mortal sin, as Cardinal Newman pointed out, is venial sin. Now we should use the sacrament of penance wisely in order to rid ourselves of our venial sins. A man, for example, might know that he has a very bad habit. He might frequently lie. He might use bad language. He might talk about the faults of his neighbor. He, he realizes that they are false, but he doesn't do anything to rid himself of them. What St. Ignatius of Loyola suggests is this, that if you know you have committed or let us put it this way, if you know that you have several habits of sin, select one of them 
It may be bad language. It may be talking about the faults of others. It may be lying. Whatever it is, select one of these faults, only one. And when you awaken in the morning, make the resolution that you will guard yourself against falling into this transgression. But before you go to bed at night, examine your conscience and see how many times you nevertheless fell into the transgression you resolved to guard yourself against. Mark that number down on a piece of paper or preferably in a little notebook. That will give you the evidence as to whether or not you are from day to day or week to week making progress in overcoming this one bad habit, this one gross vice, and in that way becoming more pleasing to Almighty God. When you go to confession, you can, if you have no mortal sins, mention this particular venial sin and the number of times. You don't have to mention the number of times with regard to a venial sin. It is my suggestion that you do so in order that it be impressed upon your mind how many times you have in the past week committed this failing so that you can see from confession to confession the improvements that you are making. The sacrament of penance and the sacrament of the Eucharist are the two sacraments that we can receive most frequently. You know, of course, that there are seven sacraments, seven signs instituted by Christ to give grace. All seven are signs, all seven give grace. But they give grace in a different way. You know, you can bake potatoes, you can fry potatoes, you can mash potatoes. There's still potatoes, but they come to you in a different way. And so we could say it is the same with regard to the sacraments. The sacrament of penance is given to us in such a way that it can provide medication, medicine, healing for the offenses that we commit. I was pointing out to you that of the seven sacraments, three of them can be received only once. Baptism, confirmation, the priesthood. There are two other sacraments which can be received more than once, but it is rare that this is done. And the two sacraments I refer to, marriage and the anointing of the sick. That leaves the Eucharist and penance, which shows the importance of these two sacraments. They are to be received frequently during the course of our lives. They are so necessary to bring us to the goal for which we are made, our eternal salvation. It is penance which removes obstacles. It is the Eucharist 
which allows us to feed upon Christ himself, the bread of the strong, so that we may be transformed more and more into our Savior. Now what is lamentable is this. I speak now as an old man. When we look at old men, we should be sympathetic because their time in this life is very short. But old people can remember. I can remember times when the lines before the confessional were long and the lines before the communion rail were short. Today it is the reverse. And it is known, even in the Vatican, that those lines before the communion rail are not lines of universal joy. For many people receive the Eucharist who do not believe that Christ is present. Polls have been taken asking Catholic people, and only Catholic people, what do they believe when they receive the Eucharist? Four statements were used by Mr. Gallup more than 35 years ago in a poll. One of these statements came from Martin Luther. Another came from John Zwingli, another 16th century heretic. The third was from Calvin, a third 16th century heretic. And the fourth, the fourth was the Catholic doctrine enshrined by the Council of Trent. Those who took the poll, as I said, were all Catholics. Some of them received the Eucharist every week, some once or twice a month, some of them yearly, and a few never. No single group of Catholics, and this was taken more than 35 years ago, no single group of Catholics, including those who were over 50 years of age at that time, selected the Catholic Church's teaching. Overall, only 30% of all of those people who were engaged in that poll selected the teaching enshrined by the Council of Trent. The others chose some form of Protestantism to express their belief in the Eucharist. So, when I was a child, people who were in serious sin did not go to the Eucharist because they believed that Christ was present. And the lines before the confessional were long. Now, I came from a very big city parish. Every Saturday afternoon, the priest heard, and there were five of them, they heard from 3 o'clock to supper time. 
And they came back again at 7.30 in the evening and heard again until the last man was out. A great shift. A great shift. First and foremost, people are not impressed with the reality of sin. And second, they do not realize, apparently, that Christ is present in the Eucharist. I am speaking to you tonight not so much about the Eucharist, but about the sacrament of penance. The first thing I told you is, thanks be to God, this sacrament was instituted in the church in order to remit, take away, mortal sin committed after baptism. So that if we lost the grace that Christ died to give us, we had, in the words of St. Jerome, a second plank that could be our safety when we were shipwrecked. And that second plank is the sacrament of penance. I told you about the obligation. We have the obligation of mentioning all the mortal sins. That is, the kind of mortal sin and the number of times we committed it. I mentioned to you that the sin must be serious. And there I neglected to give you a couple of examples. Any use of the generative act outside of marriage is seriously sinful. And we know because of the assaults leveled against the church by the secular world, which embraces pansexualism, elevating homosexuality, sodomy, to the same dignity as marriage, the same dignity that God himself raised to a sacrament. The secular world despises. The secular world sees no difference between marriage and non-marriage. Everyone has a right, they believe, to express their sexuality, fornication and adultery. These you find in the scripture, but you don't find in the sexual culture. But the law of God is clear. Any use of the generative faculty outside of marriage is seriously sinful. Secondly, there is an obligation to attend the holy sacrifice of the Mass on Sundays and on holy days of obligation. First of all, there is the natural obligation of man to adore Almighty God. And the church that Christ established specifies how it is that we, members of Christ's church, 
are to express this obligation. We do so by attending Mass. Now, attending Mass is what the theologians call a positive obligation. That is, we must do something rather than refrain from doing something. The law against murder is a negative obligation. There is never any time that we can take the life of an innocent man. We are forbidden at each and every moment of our lives from doing so. But to complete a positive obligation is a different story. There can be circumstances, of course, which relieve us of the obligation. And we know that. If we are sick, the church does not demand that we be present for the holy sacrifice. If we have to take care of people who are sick and cannot in any way attend Mass, we are relieved of that obligation. If we are traveling and cannot find a Catholic Church, once again, we are relieved. But all things being equal, if a man says to himself, I think I'm going to watch television, or I'm going to go hunting, or I'm going to go and do something that I would like to do, rather than pay my obligation to Almighty God, who is my creator, my Lord, and who will judge me at the hour of my death. If I defy the law of God, I'm guilty of grave sin. Third, a third example has to do with calumny and detraction. What do these terms mean? Both of them regard our neighbor. Every man is a sinner, but every man has a right to a good reputation. Shakespeare said, who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something nothing, t'was mine, tis his, and has been slave to thousands. But he who filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches self, but makes me poor indeed. We injure the good reputation of another by calumny, which means that we lie. For example, someone might be envious of a virtuous woman and tells some friends, oh, but if you knew that this lady years ago had an abortion, you would not regard her in such favorable light. He's lying. Accusing the person of serious sin and consequently he himself because of that lie, which destroys the reputation of another is guilty of serious sin. There is a second called detraction. Detraction comes from another Latin word, traho, trare, traxi, tractus. Attract, drags your, lot, your eye to someone whose appearance is pleasurable, detract, 
tears down. We are guilty of detraction when we make known hidden faults of the neighbor. I'm talking to a friend about possibly an acquaintance, and I mention faults that this person has committed. They are unknown to the one I'm speaking to. What will be the result? He or she will think less of our mutual acquaintance, and consequently, the reputation is torn down. Now I have to make restitution. If you steal from another, you have to give back what you stole. If you injure the good reputation of another, you have to restore it. So if you told somebody a lie about another person and thereby damaged his or her reputation, you are under obligation to go to that person and to admit that what you said was a lie. And when it comes to detraction, you can't very well tell the individual, I told you a lie. That would be a lie. How are you going to restore the good name? You restore the good name by mentioning good things that this person has done in order to offset the bad things which you have reported. Now, in order to get a complete list of all the various kinds of mortal sin, it is good to get a good Catholic catechism. The Catholic catechism, called the Baltimore Catechism, is excellent because it does answer the questions that we want answered with regard to sin. What things are sinful, how gravely sinful, etc. Now we can point this out further. How good Christ is by giving us the sacrament. And Christ has entrusted the ministry of the sacrament to priests. And who are priests? They're men. They're sinners. St. John Chrysostom said it was not to an angel. It's not Christ himself who sits there in judgment. We would be struck dumb. But it is to the shepherds of the flock who were also members of the flock that this responsibility has been given because they should have mercy on those who are also sinners. Now look what the church does. She tells us, yes, if you wish to have your sins forgiven, and you must, go to confession. We know that it is embarrassing for you, and therefore it is not necessary that you go to your pastor. You can go to any priest who has faculties, and you do not have to go to him face to face. But nonetheless, nonetheless, 
The devil sees his opportunity. For the devil encourages us to commit sin. But when we are attracted to the sacrament of penance, he tries to prevent us by working upon our imagination. We can see what the church is doing for us, but we still might be embarrassed or afraid. Yes, because it's necessary for us to be humble. What did our Lord tell us when he told us that we should imitate him? Learn of me because I am meek and because I am humble of heart. The great St. John Chrysostom once wrote this. What would you say to a man who did not wish to visit a physician because of the ugly ulcer on his leg? You would tell him quite plainly, you are acting foolishly. It's because you have the ulcer on your leg that you should go to the physician so that he can cure it. And says St. John, the same advice must be given to the sinner. Yes, you have serious sin upon your soul. Go, please, at once to the one who can remove that sin from you, the one who has been set over you, the one who will have sympathy for you, for he also is a sinner like yourself. The sacrament of penance is the sacrament in the curie of ours words of the infinite mercy of Almighty God. God bless you. We'll now stand and we can sing Immaculate Mary at least a couple of standards and then we will resume. Immaculate Mary an instruction on the sacrament of penance. You may say, well, I knew all of that. Great. It's very good for us to have a review. Have a review in order that we might once again resolve to use the sacrament as Almighty God intended so that we become close to him. Now, I will begin with St. Ignatius' principle and foundation. A principle is a starting point. The whole is greater than the part. You don't have to reason to it. You can see it. 
There is also in philosophy a principle called the principle of non-contradiction from which all sorts of other philosophic conclusions can ultimately lead. And it says, a thing cannot be, a thing cannot, a thing cannot be and be at one and the same time under the same circumstances. Impossible. So the principle and foundation is a starting point it's called a foundation because a structure is placed upon it. And the structure is the structure of our interior or spiritual life. And what is the principle and foundation? St. Ignatius says that is, there are two parts to it. And the first part is this. Man is created for the praise, the reverence, and the service of God, and by these means to save his soul. That first sentence can be divided into three parts. Man is created. What does that mean? To be created is to be made out of nothing. If a man or woman wishes to make something, he or she needs a pre-existing material. It may be cloth, it may be wood, it may be stone. But the Lord God, at the beginning of time, said, let there be light. And light, which up until that moment did not exist, came into being. We have been created. If God were to forget about us for a single instant, which of course is impossible, we would fall back into the nothingness from which we came. Now, St. James tells us that in God, there is no change or shadow of alteration. The great difference between God the creator and everything that is created. In God, there is no change. Which means, from all eternity, God thought of you. And from all eternity, God willed that you come into existence, even though it has happened in a relatively short period since the dawn of creation. God always thought about you. Why did he make you? The Baltimore Catechism says, God made me to know, to love, and to serve him in this world, and to be forever happy with him in the next. And St. Ignatius says, man is created for the praise, the reverence, and the service of God.
the service of God. We are to do the will of Almighty God. And the will of Almighty God is enshrined for us in the Ten Commandments and the Six Laws of the Church. The Ten Commandments, St. Paul tells us, are written on the heart of man. Is there any nation, for example, that does not have a law against murder, that does not have a law against theft? Of course not. For these are written on the heart of man. In addition to the Ten Commandments, which God specifically made known to Moses, there are the precepts of the church. Christ gave to his church the power of making laws. For he said to the apostles, he who hears you, hears me. And if you look at the laws of the church, you see that they are all for your benefit. We are, for example, obliged to attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. Christ, who died for us on the night before he suffered, changed bread and wine into his body and blood, and then gave the command, do this in memory of me. He gave us the greatest gift imaginable. Should we not give thanks to him by doing what he desires of us? And consequently, his church says, we are to attend Mass on Sundays and on Holy Days of Obligation. I mentioned to you the great value of the sacrament of penance. And so there is a law that we receive the sacrament of penance at least once a year. If, for example, you went to confession today, by this time next year, you should go again. There is also the obligation to receive the Eucharist. Christ made that very clear. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have my life in you. The man who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is because she wishes us to have eternal life that the church imposes upon us the obligation of receiving the Eucharist at least once during Easter time. And the Easter time begins the first Sunday of Lent, and it ends on Pentecost Sunday, a period of more than 100 days, during which time we are asked to receive the Eucharist once. The church also has instituted laws regarding marriage, which are obligatory upon Catholics. For a Catholic is to marry before a priest and two witnesses, since Christ himself 
raised this natural institution to the dignity of a sacrament, no Catholic can validly marry unless he marries according to the laws of the Catholic Church. And we have an obligation to contribute in some way to the support of the church. Naturally, if we belong to any organization, we have an obligation to promote that organization financially, according to our means, and so also with regard to the Catholic Church. So, we are to serve God, and we serve God by obeying the Ten Commandments and also the laws of the Church. But I also mention that we are to give praise and reverence to God. The psalmist indicates that every creature, merely because it exists, gives glory to God. Because the creature, whether it is an animal, a plant, a rock, whether it is the cold or the heat, merely by existence, gives God honor, praise. But we are a special creature because unlike all of the animals and all of the rocks and all of the plants, we have an intellect and a will. And because of our intellect, we can know that there is a God and become thankful to God because he has created us and because he has so richly endowed us with all manner of blessing, both natural and supernatural. And moreover, we realize that we must come before Almighty God, who will be our judge. And consequently, we give him praise and reverence. Reverence, it seems to me, comes from the Latin verb verior, which means to fear. Because of the great reverence we have for Almighty God, we fear to offend him. And says St. Ignatius, through praise, reverence, and service, by these means to save his soul. He indicates that the issue is still in doubt. It is not a foregone conclusion that we will indeed save our souls. Consequently, we are reminded of the words of Christ himself and of his great saint, St. Augustine. For in the first page of St. Augustine's Confessions, that great man wrote, Our hearts were made for thee, O Lord, and they will not rest until they rest in thee. The tragedy of those who are in hell, they will not rest, and they know it's their own fault. Our hearts were made for thee, O Lord, 
and they will not rest until they rest in thee. And Christ himself had words on the subject. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world but suffer the loss of his immortal soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The first part of St. Ignatius' principle and foundation is discovered in that one line. Man was created for the praise, the reverence, and the service of God, and by these means to save his soul. What about everything else? What about all of the animals, all of the rocks, all of the things that man himself has fashioned? We can say that everything else, the rocks, the animals, have the same origin because they were all made by God. But they do not have the same destiny. They were not made for the beatific vision. Their purpose, as St. Jerome points out, is to help man to achieve his purpose. And so St. Ignatius tells us, we are to use creatures insofar as they help us towards our eternal salvation, and we are to reject creatures insofar as they impede us from attaining it. The criterion, therefore, that we use is this. Will this creature lead me towards God or away from God? Many men will choose creatures because they're pleasant and they avoid them because they're painful. Sometimes, however, maybe many times, it is the pleasant creature that can lead us astray and the painful creature that can lead us towards God. I need just point out to you that wine was made for the benefit of man. And yet, how many people have become slaves to the pleasant occupation of drinking alcoholic beverages? The painful creature. The painful creature is necessary. Christ himself tells us when he says... Unless you do penance, you will all likewise perish. Our Holy Catholic Church imposes upon us penances. It was, in fact, one of the precepts of the Church that I neglected to mention to fast and to abstain on the days appointed. Why does the church impose penances on us? 
because she's faithful to the words of Christ. And she knows that if left to ourselves, we creatures that we are, we undoubtedly will not do penance. Now in ancient days, the penitential season was very demanding. I myself can remember, prior to the Vatican Council, all those people between the ages of 21 and 59 years of age were obliged during the entirety of Lent to fast. They could eat three meals, but only one of those three meals could be a full meal with meat. The other two were meatless, and when it added together, did not equal a full meal. All of the Fridays of the year were days of abstinence. Only fitting. What happened on Friday? Christ died. And so, in memory of Christ's death for me, I should do penance on Friday. Paul VI, when he changed the legislation, did so because the Catholic Church is universal. There are areas in Africa, and probably in the Orient as well, where meat is rare. And so if people had an opportunity on some Friday of the year, the Holy Father did not wish to forbid them. And so in his legislation, he told us that if you did not abstain from meat on Friday, you were to impose upon yourself another obligation. I don't know how many people have been instructed that they are still obliged on Friday in memory of Christ's death to impose upon themselves some penitential act. The painful creature. Besides fast and abstinence, we can point out the missionary activity of the church. Catholic people from the time of Christ have gone throughout the world spreading his message. Today, the movement is from the first world, you might say, to the third and fourth worlds. The people who go on missionary journeys, and they are not restricted to the priests and the nuns, they're also lay people. They have to learn a new language. They're vulnerable to diseases. They have to adapt to a different kind of cuisine. And they do this, why? Although it is painful, they do so for their salvation and for the salvation of others. Man is made for the praise, the reverence, and the service of God, and by these means to save his soul. Everything else in creation has been made by Almighty God 
to help us to achieve the purpose for which we have been made. Consequently, we should use creatures to help us to our goal. The creature is not the end. The creature is a means to the end. We have been made for God. We have not been made for creatures. And so at the conclusion of his principle and foundation, St. Ignatius draws us up short. He says, we should not prefer a long life to a short one. We should not prefer health to sickness. We should not prefer riches to poverty, nor honor to dishonor. And when you hear these words, you undoubtedly feel a resistance, if not a rebellion. But after all, these four contradictories named by St. Ignatius are all creatures. We have not been made for creatures. We have been made for God. And certainly, if through poverty, if through sickness, if through dishonor and a short life, I could attain the one thing necessary, my eternal salvation, I would, of course, be foolish to jeopardize that salvation by choosing their opposites. Most of these are beyond our determination. We cannot determine whether we'll be sick or whether we will be well, whether we'll live a long life or a short life, whether we'll have honor or dishonor. In fact, saints are found in all of these categories. There are saints that were sick and saints that were well. No one, of course, escapes life unless he passes through death. But St. Francis Xavier, the patron of the Catholic missions, burned himself out like a candle. He was not as sick a day in his life until he reached San Cian Island within sight of the forbidden kingdom of China, at which time he fell into sickness and died some four days later. Louis de Montfort, the great hero or champion of the Blessed Lady, was a man of enormous strength. It is said that he could lift a vat of wine above his head and walk hundreds of yards with it. Although he enjoyed great health, he too died when he was in his 40s. Health, sickness. There are two saints that I use as examples. One is a woman, and the other is a man. The woman is St. Teresa of Avila. After she pronounced her vows as a young woman, 21 or 22 years of age, 
She was stricken by some strange form of paralysis and had to leave the convent for some two years to be treated by a physician while living at home. Later on, when she was establishing Carmel's up and down Spain, she suffered from heart failure, sickness. Padre Pio, Padre Pio was alive when I was a boy. He became famous, undoubtedly because many an Italian mother told her son that if he had an opportunity, he should visit the Padre at San Giovanni Rotundo. And so these Italian-American soldiers prevailed upon their chaplains to lead pilgrimages. I met men who met the Padre. One was a member of his congregation, Capuchin, an American from Buffalo who studied abroad in Italy. Just before the outbreak of the Second World War, his superior recalled him and the other seminarians, but they were allowed to visit San Giovanni Rotundo before returning to the States. And he told me, there were only five or six of them in a private audience. They all, of course, spoke Italian. And one of them, because he was a young man, even though he was a religious, he had a brick right between his ears. What he did is he grabbed the mitten of the padre. And my informant told me that at that moment, the eyes of the padre flashed. And he said, God! Bless you, my son. <laughs> the other man was also a priest. This man had a contract with the greatest Major League Baseball team of all time. By that, of course, you know, the New York Yankees. He was engaged to be married to a girl named Lorraine. And he went with his chaplain and several others to visit San Giovanni Rotundo, witnessed the Padre say mass, was mesmerized. After all, afterwards, there was a private audience, and each one of the soldiers asked the Padre, what's gonna happen to me? And the Padre would say, you're going to get married and have bambinos. And this man said, ask about me. And the Padre looked at him and said, you're going to be a priest. He said, what? What about the Yankees? What about my sweet Lorraine? But he never turned back. He was ordained for Los Angeles, it died several, several years ago. So the Padre was very, very well known. Now, he suffered the stigmata for more than 50 years. In fact, in one of the audiences, somebody asked him, do those things hurt? The Padre, remember, out of humility, used to have mittens guarding the wounds on his hands. And he said to his questioner, 
They're not painted on. <laughs> so they do hurt. And in addition, he had indigestion problems. He was a very holy man. He wanted to be humble, not allow inquiring physicians to uh, examine unless necessary. His stigmata, and once he had to have a painful operation, I forget exactly, I think it was gallstones, he would not, he would not undergo anesthesia. But he, he fainted during the, the uh, surgery, and so I suppose they were able to examine the stigmata. But that would show the kind of man he was, the humility of, of the padre. So here you have an example of people who were sick, people who had wealth, and people who were poor. Thomas More. If you ever saw the wonderful movie, Man for All Seasons, you see that Moore, he wasn't the wealthiest of men, but he certainly had the good things of this world. The movie depicts him as in charge of a manor house, with servants, attending his needs. But when it became obvious that he could not retain his position, Unless he acknowledged Henry VIII as head of the Catholic Church in England, he renounced his commission. And as the movie dramatizes, he quickly went from a state of plenty to one of penury. And ultimately, he suffered martyrdom. Now, he could not have renounced his commission and gone voluntarily into poverty unless ahead of time, his heart was not attached to these good things of the world. On the opposite side, Benedict Joseph Love was a professional beggar. He tried his vocation with the Cistercians, but after a short time he realized God was not calling him to that life. And as there are multiplicity of vocations, just as there are a multiplicity of flowers, he became a strange plant, you might say, in the kingdom of God. He would travel all day, beg scraps in the evening, sometimes they were given, sometimes not, ask for a place in the barn again. Sometimes he was permitted, sometimes he was denied. There's a touching story of how one night he was given lodging by the grandfather of the Curie of Ars. And in the morning before he left, he gave a special blessing to Matthew Vianney. Matthew Vianney was the father of the Curie of Ars. This man, Benedict Joseph Love, several times made the pilgrimage from Paris, France, to St. James Compostela in Spain. The distance from the Pyrenees Mountains to St. James is some 450 miles. You'd have to add on another 150, I suppose, if you're going to begin your journey from Paris. 
He died when he was 35 years of age. By that time, word of his sanctity had spread to the cardinals in Rome who would come and seek his advice. But they always did so from a respectful distance because of the fleas that attacked the saints. So that's Benedict Joseph Love, an example of poverty. There is also the example of a long life and a short life. Short life, many, many young men and women died the death of martyrs. We know, of course, that in the Jesuits, there were three canonized saints, the oldest of whom did not live to be 25 years of age, St. Aloysius Gonzaga. There's also St. John Birchmans, St. Stanislaus Koska. We know, of course, St. Joan of Arc was only 21. St. Teresa of Lisieux was only 24 years of age. When Jacinta and Francisco Marto are canonized saints, they will be the youngest non-mortals. At the opposite end, old men. And the one old man that I would take is St. Anthony of the Desert. His life was written by St. Athanasius, one of the doctors of the Eastern Church. He's not a legend. This man was an Egyptian, a Copt. One morning he came to Mass during the weekday with a problem on his mind. What was he going to do with the inheritance he had received from his deceased parents? He heard the gospel reading, which said, if you wish to be perfect, go sell what you have, and then come follow me. He felt that those words were addressed to him. Could not wait until Mass was over. He made provision for a young sister of his, gave the balance to the poor, apprenticed himself to a man who lived at the edge of the Sahara Desert, and after five years plunged out deeper into the desert. People would come to seek him and profit by his counsel. In fact, St. Athanasius says that from time to time, the emperor in Constantinople would send a delegation into the desert to bring back Anthony. He lived to be 120 and surfaces in St. Augustine's Confessions. In the sixth or seventh book, Augustine tells us that a man from his hometown in Africa was working on the staff of the emperor, who at that time was living in Milan. This man had a few days vacation. He went to see Augustine, and when he entered into Augustine's parlor, he noticed that Augustine had the scriptures on a table, something like a coffee table. Now, in the old days, good Catholic people would, from time to time, consult the scriptures at random, if they had a problem, and they do so maybe three or four times. And if all three or four statements from the scripture answered the problem that they had in their mind, they felt that this was a revelation from God. 
When these men came into the presence of Augustine, they asked him if he had ever heard of Anthony of the Desert. He confessed that he had not. They told him about Anthony's story, how Anthony spent almost 100 years in the desert. And then they said, there were two men in the service with us. One day, they had a holiday. They went into Milan, seeking out the house of two men who were living a religious life. They didn't find them, but one of them found the life of Anthony, written by Athanasius. He read it to the other. And when he was finished, he said, what is it that we are seeking in the service of the emperor? Is it not that at some time in the future, we may be admitted into his inner circle? But the way from here to there is fraught with peril. And if we ever arrive, it will be most perilous to maintain our position. But here and now, if we desire it, we can become the friends of Christ. So they renounced their commission and became monks. That's not all, said Pontianus. Both of these men were engaged to be married. And when their fiancés heard what they had done, they too abandoned the world and embraced religious life. When he heard this, Augustine was shaken. He excused himself, went into the garden, and started crying. He himself was held back from the following of Christ because of his lust. And now when he heard what these men had done, he was spurred to imitate them. And while he was in the garden, he heard the words, tole leje, tole leje, take, read. And at first he thought, these are the words of a children's rhyme. But upon reflection, he realized he had never heard the children from the neighborhood say these words. And then it dawned on him, he should go back into his parlor, consult the scriptures. He opened up the scripture. His eyes rested on the passage from Romans. It is not in strife and contention. It is not in chambering and lust, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. Augustine was broken. And it was all through the life of Anthony of the desert, who, as I said, was not a fictitious, a legendary, but a real character. Honor and dishonor. There is this touching story <clears throat> of one of the redemptorist saints, Gerard Magella, the patron of women in childbirth, who died when he was only 29 years of age. He could have become a Franciscan or a Jesuit, but he decided he would join the new religious congregation established by Alphonsus Liguri. In fact, for a time, he lived in the same house as the saintly founder. A woman, young woman, who had a child outside of marriage, accused the saint of being the father. Alphonsus, alarmed by this rumor, demanded that Gerard come and visit him. 
He asked him about the question, and Gerard did not defend himself. Consequently, Alphonsus ruled that Gerard was not to receive communion. And this state went on for three months until finally the woman acknowledged that she had calumniated the saints. Thunderstruck, Alphonsus asked Gerard, why did you not defend yourself? And with the wisdom of saints, Gerard said, I realize that this was a trial God had sent me and that God would, if he so desired, to relieve me of it in his own good time. Honor, dishonor. Kings have honor, and a number of kings are saints. I think now of Louis IX, the King of France, Edward the Confessor, King of England, Ferdinand the Catholic of Spain, St. Stephen of Hungary. The great office in the high Middle Ages, however, was the office of the papacy. There is this story known by Hitler. During the Second World War, Hitler said at the table, I will not go to Canosa. He was dropping a reference, and that reference would go over most people's heads. In the 11th century, there was a pope, canonized saint, who's known by the popular name Hildebrand. Hildebrand warred against what is called lay investiture. Now at that time, the bishops were recruited by princes because the bishops were usually men of great competence in administrative affairs. And so to show their approval, the kings would give the insignia of office. Hildebrand realized that this would confuse people. People would think that it's the king or the prince that is making a man a bishop. And so he forbade what was known as lay investiture. A prince, Henry, who wanted to become Holy Roman Emperor, defied the papacy. And as a result, Hildebrand excommunicated him, which meant that all of his subjects were released from their fealty to Henry. Realizing the great mistake he had made, in the middle of winter, according to the story, Henry sought out the pontiff who was staying at a place called Canosa. And for three days, he stood barefoot on ice until he was admitted into the papal presence. And the Holy Father agreed to lift the excommunication. This, of course, would show the extraordinary prestige of the papacy, the great honor that the papacy had during the times of the High Middle Ages. Now, as I said, the basic idea, man is created for the praise, the reverence, and service of God, and by these means to save ourselves. What does it profit us if we gain the whole world but suffer the loss of our immortal soul? 
Creatures can be painful, they can be pleasant. We must realize that they are not our goal, they are not our end. They will not give us the happiness that we desire because our hearts have been made by thee, O Lord, and they will not rest until they rest in thee. So when we choose creatures, we choose them insofar as they lead us to our goal. And therefore, we're indifferent to creatures. It doesn't matter if they're painful. It doesn't matter if they're pleasant. What matters is will a creature bring me to God? God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.